I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. American democracy has been pretty much a two-party system since the earliest days of the Republic. But third parties have also played a vital role, allowing those outside the political mainstream, whether they be socialists on the left or hardcore libertarians on the right, to have their voices heard, and in many cases influence the country's political debate. But it turns out the coronavirus pandemic is making it a lot harder for third parties to even get on the ballot this fall. The reason? In many states, those parties need to get thousands of signatures on petitions, a task that could well be impossible given the social distancing restrictions caused by the virus. We'll talk to a leading Green Party candidate for president about what impact those restrictions are having for his party and what that could mean for the 2020 election on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, we've talked uh, quite a bit over the last week about the many ways that the uh, coronavirus epidemic is affecting our politics, our democracy, and the 2020 election. But the guest we're going to have today, uh, Howie Hawkins of the Green Party, is raising an issue that I haven't seen anywhere else get attention, but it does strike me as significant, this whole question of whether third parties like the Green Party, the Libertarian Party other parties that need to get signatures on petitions to get on the ballot are going to be able to do that given the social distancing restrictions now in place throughout the country. And that strikes me as pretty important on multiple levels. First, you know, just basic democratic principles that uh, allowing third, fourth, fifth parties to uh, participate in the election. And then also, of course, uh, you know, what impact does if the Green Party can't get in the ballot on a lot of states, what impact is that going to have on the uh, Trump Biden race in the fall? Pretty interesting questions. Yeah, it goes to the heart of our democracy. The Green Party has been on presidential ballots, not every cycle, but uh, they were in 2016. uh, They were in 2000. Now, of course, there are going to be a lot of uh, Democrats out there who I think would breathe a sigh of relief if they're probably not cheering, a, cheering, <laughs> cheering uh, the be, fact that the Green they, Party they, can't they, get on the ballot. Because yeah. they, right, because they remember that in both those cycles, you know, there was plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, the Green Party kept the Democratic candidate from winning the, the election. But look, you know, coronavirus, this public health emergency has had a huge impact on the whole country in many, many ways. And there are going to be consequences and things are going to not be the same as they have been in the past. And it looks as if the fate of the Green Party in the 2020 election is going to be one of those consequences, although our guest is as we'll get into it with him, um, is fighting back hard as is, uh, you know, the rest of those members of the party. So we'll we'll have to see what happens there. All right. And uh, before we get to uh, Howie Hawkins of the Green Party, we have our public health contributor, uh, epidemiologist, Dr. Catherine Jacobson with us to give us a uh, take on where we are on the virus right now. Dr. Jacobson, thanks for rejoining us on Skullduggery. Yeah, glad to be talking with you again. But unfortunately, we are nowhere near the end of the coronavirus outbreak here in the U.S. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, in some respects, the numbers seem to be getting grimmer and grimmer. We're now well over 1,000 deaths from the virus and uh, moving in on 80,000 
cases right now? What do you make of the current numbers? And those 80,000 cases are the diagnoses. And we know that a lot of people who have the symptoms have not been tested yet, and they probably are not part of that count. So we're underestimating the number of cases that we have now. And we know that for every case that we have now, that person's on average going to infect maybe two other people, maybe more. So we're still in the part of the outbreak in the US where the number of cases is going to climb rather rapidly. How long that increase goes on is going to be a function of how aggressive we are with control measures. Yeah, well, let me ask you about that. And, you know, we, we have now all in this country, I think, kind of become obsessed with the numbers. And part of it is that we're all looking for glimmers of hope in the data. And I wanted to ask you as an epidemiologist, how do you look at public health data? How do you assess when you think there is a, a positive trend or a negative trend. And a couple of things, I have a couple of things in mind. Uh, a couple of days ago, Governor Cuomo in New York was talking about the rate of hospitalizations in New York looked like it, it was uh, going down. I think it was went from last Sunday, it was uh, doubling. And then by the following Tuesday, it was uh, doubling every two days. Then the following Tuesday, it was doubling every 4.7 days. And then there's also Italy, for example. It's just, just one more data point. For a little while there, we saw the rate of deaths going down a little bit. Then it went up. Then you saw the actual number of cases going down, and people kind of seized on that as a possible hopeful sign. When do you know that there is a positive trend? Well, when we start seeing in New York that the doubling rate is slowing, so it's taking longer to double the number of cases, that means the number of cases are still going up. So we aren't to the point now where we're seeing fewer cases every day than we did before. We're still in that ramping up period. And we know that in a lot of the rest of the US, we haven't even really gotten to the part where the curve is going to start increasing rapidly. But we know that there are cases in all 50 states. We assume that there is local transmission in all 50 states. As an epidemiologist, I tend to look at rates, not at counts. And so when we see the counts are highest in New York City, that's because New York City is by far our most populous city. So of course we've got the most cases there. When we see that the state with the most cases is California, that's because that's our most populous state. Unless we start looking at rates, so the number of cases per population, we're going to have a skewed perception that this is an urban thing and that it's only affecting our more populous parts of the country, which tend to be the coasts. Over the next week or two, I think we're going to start seeing that there are hot spots in other parts of the country as well. We're starting to see that with some places like Louisiana, and we're going to start seeing that in other parts of the country, including possibly some rural areas or at least less urban areas. So we don't really know where those hotspots are going to be yet. We haven't yet done enough testing all across the country to get to that point. And so the perceptions over the coming weeks are going to shift a little bit. So we are not yet to that part where I can say, well, these parts of the U.S. seem to be in the clear until we have good data that's from lots of places, lots of municipalities, not just state level data. We don't really have the true picture yet of where this is going. I mean, you've heard uh, the president talk about hoping to get things back on track, lifting the restrictions by Easter. A lot of doubt has been cast on whether that's uh, feasible, given the way the numbers are going. What's your sense of where we are right now? Is there a glimmer of hope out there somewhere? And what kind of time frame are you looking at when you look at the rates? A lot of states haven't even put into effect some of these forced social distancing measures like the stay-at-home orders yet. So a lot of states haven't even really started their countdown to when we expect to see transmission start to slow. So it may be that in places like New York or Northern California, where those measures went into effect a week or two ago, that we would start to see some turnaround on the trajectory in a couple of weeks. In places where people are still going about their daily lives the same way they always have, chances are that the number of cases are going to continue to increase for more than a month. So we aren't very far into control in the US. 
When you ask about what is a success story, you may have seen this week that in Wuhan, China, where the outbreak first occurred, they are starting to get back to normal life. So people are starting to go back to work, transportation is starting to run again. And that's been about two months since they put the city on lockdown. But those two months were really uh, strict, way stricter than what most municipalities and states in the U.S. have put into place. China pretty much put Wuhan on lockdown. People were barely allowed to leave their homes for eight weeks. But doing that meant that they really were able to stop transmission. So unless the various places in the U.S. are taking more extreme measures, we aren't going to be able to stop this in certainly not in the near future. What's the near future? Uh, months, probably. Months. It could be perhaps four months uh, till we would get back on track, but that really depends on how widespread the control measures are, how intensive they are, how well people follow them. Uh, of course, there, there are two sides to this. Partly it's the policy decision where government authorities, leaders are deciding what kind of measures to put into place. The other half of that equation is what the public is willing to do. And so politicians are being responsive to what they hear from constituents, and they're trying to understand how long their constituents are willing to have restrictive measures put in place that limit their freedoms to be out and about in some way. But I'd say that right now, there are lots of Americans who would say, I don't care if there are restrictions in place for me personally going out to sporting events or large concerts or sit in uh, restaurant experiences. These are not things that for me right now I feel safe doing. So whether those political things are in place or not, behaviors have changed and will stay different for a while. Dr. Jacobson, to that point, as we're recording this podcast on Thursday, there's some news that just broke, which is that President Trump has sent letters to the governors basically saying that they're going to be issuing new guidelines on how different regions across the country, I think even county by county, will be able to make decisions using the data that we're that the government is collecting, decisions about as to whether to relax or enhance the measures that have been put in place. So I guess the idea would be that if there is a lot more disease in a certain area than another one, those two places would act accordingly. Does that make sense that you can kind of divide up the country in that way based on what you're seeing at a particular moment in time, what the trends are in particular places? Yes, the response should be tailored to the local situation. And when you asked if there's some good news, some good news this week is that we have done more testing. And places that have been able to do a lot of testing to either say there's a lot of transmission here or we're not seeing that many cases here, they have the evidence that they can use to make the decision that's right for their communities. In the absence of data, we have to be more strict about how we approach control. As we get more data, we should be able to relax in some places some of those measures, but also continue testing so that if places that right now are not affected start to have more cases, those strict control measures would go into place right away. Explain to me how you relax those measures, because if you do, let's say, in some Midwestern county, and you say, okay, now we don't have to follow the same social distancing guidelines. Now it's fine for you to get on a bus or go to a sport, sports arena. Isn't there a danger that you're just going to bring the disease right back to where you're from? Yeah, there is a risk that when we have coronavirus spreading anywhere, it could be brought anywhere else. So we saw this week that New Yorkers were advised to self-quarantine if they traveled to other locations. And we don't really know where all the hotspots are. So there are lots of people who could be feeling basically fine, but accidentally go somewhere else and start an outbreak. So when we talk right now about relaxing some control measures, that doesn't mean go back to business the way it was done a month ago. That means that there might not need to be stay at home orders, but we certainly would still be recommending that people practice social distancing. You said before that there may be a need for even stricter controls uh, in some places. Like what? 
Well, right now, most of the U.S. has not had a stay-at-home order put on their jurisdiction. So although the coasts and some other states have had these put into effect, many of them just within the past few days, we haven't really done strict control measures in most of the country yet. So in most of the country, we are not to the point where we would be relaxing anything because we haven't really tried to do more restrictive social distancing. Dr. Jacobson, I've got uh, two quick questions about what other countries are doing to contain the uh, the spread of the virus versus what we seem to be willing to do and, and not do. One is I've talked to friends in Europe, in Spain, in Italy. They say that the police are all over the streets and enforcing these uh, stay-at-home orders. Uh, not that people can't ever go out, but they have to have a legitimate reason to go out. And people who are driving are sometimes stopped and asked why they're out driving. And France, I think I read, has issued something like 100,000 fines. Do we need to take those kinds of strict measures, do you think? Do you think we might get to a point where we will need to do that? And then I have one follow-up. I think that's entirely likely. And that might not be a nationwide thing, but certainly in hotspots, especially in the more urban areas, That would be a way to try to start slowing the number of new cases per patient. The idea in a lot of Europe is that if you have only household members interacting with each other, after a few weeks, maybe the whole household has become infected, but nobody else has been infected, and those chains of transmission have been interrupted and then stopped. So while healthcare workers might still be at risk of bringing the infection home, for the most part, in the general population, transmission has ended. Uh, the U.S. is a very large geographic entity, as well as one that has 50 different states that operate according to their own public health regulations. So the approach here might look different than the way other countries have approached it, but we need to, as Americans, be willing to think creatively and also Uh, Look to what the success stories have been in different places as we figure out how to move forward. So one more, and this this is far more extreme, and I think for a lot of Americans would raise the the specter of Big Brother, but it is happening in places like Taiwan and Singapore and uh, Czechoslovakia. And that is countries that are using, they call it smart quarantine, and they're using data from smartphones, credit cards, to map the location of people who've been infected and then track down their contacts. And so that may be a non-starter in this country because of our uh, the way we view civil liberties and our suspicion of government. But can you imagine a scenario in which the, the federal government or, say, state governments started to think along those lines and institute those kinds of measures? There are some creative ways that we could use technology. And we do have to be very careful not to violate any laws, whether it's federal or state or local. But there could be ways even that individuals could volunteer to opt in, where people who wanted to participate could put an app on their phone that would collect information about where they are, what their symptoms are, who they're interacting with. And that could be very useful, especially at the community level, for figuring out where problems are and what measures would need to be taken to try to contain them. Oh, that's fascinating. I had not heard of the idea of people opting in for that. Is there any, have you heard that that's actually happening anywhere in this country? I'm not aware of any places where that's been put into effect yet, but I think there are a lot of Americans who are eager to feel like they're doing something to help. We've seen people start doing things like donating masks or sewing new masks for healthcare workers. And this could potentially be a way that people could volunteer to help their communities with the coronavirus response. So uh, nothing yet, but I'm sure that we've got a lot of innovators who are working on ideas like that. Well, to all our skullduggery listeners who have masks at home and want to donate, uh, please take Dr. Jacobson's words uh, to heart and uh, donate whatever you can. Doctor, thanks uh, for joining us, and uh, we hope you will continue to do so as this crisis continues. Looking forward to chatting again. We now have with us from his cramped apartment in Syracuse, New York, Howie Hawkins, a Green Party candidate for president. Howie, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. We should point out, by the way, Isakoff, that we're on Skype. I can see him. It's cramped, 
but it's cramped because he's surrounded by books and you know yes and very important right. files and it's a it's a kind of scholarly scholarly cramped i would right. say well th- then that makes it a change for us we're uh, yeah <laughs> we're, we're going uh we're upgrading uh our content um you called me last week i think at the suggestion of another previous skullduggery guest randy credico who um has been on the show and i gather is a supporter of yours and I think what really grabbed me when we talked is you're a leading Green Party candidate for president. You're not the official nominee at this point, correct? Correct. We are scheduled to have a convention in Detroit July 9 to 12, but that's up in the air now. Well, it's everything is up in the air for everybody. But the point that I wanted to address with you is the trouble that the Green Party is having getting on the ballot in the 2020 election as a result of the coronavirus emergency. Tell us about that, because that strikes me as something that is potentially significant on multiple grounds. Well, this country is off the charts compared to other electoral democracies around the world on how hard it is to get on the ballot. You want to run for the national legislature in New Zealand, you need two signatures. In the House of Commons in Britain, you need 10 signatures. Australia's 50, Canada's 100, Germany's 200. In every state that I know of in the United States, it's thousands or even tens of thousands. Now, a lot of those countries don't have presidents, they have parliamentary systems. But for us, we go into this election with 21 state ballots, and that counts the District of Columbia. So we have 30 more ballots we have to petition onto. And we've got on these ballots in the past. In 2016, we had we were on the ballot in 45 states and, and an official write-in in three more states. So we had a job of getting about a million and a half signatures across all the states that are remaining and now that's on hold because we can't go out with this social distancing and ask for signatures. So these have to be physical. I mean, you got to go out and actually knock on doors and get people's signatures. It has to be all done physically. That's right. So now we're in the process of we pulled together a team of lawyers and ballot access activists, and we're appealing to the states. And we're making three different kinds of appeal. Each state is a little different. Uh, one is place us on the ballot because we've been on the ballot in the past and we can't go out and petition. So, you know, include us in the election. Another option is some states have a filing fee and, you know, let us just do the filing fee. And another option is to allow some form of electronic petitioning, which they did in the New Jersey primaries, I believe. I think that's, I got the state right. So those are the three options we're looking at. So we are drafting letters to the various state leaders, secretaries of state, governors, the leaders of the legislature, and saying, give us relief. And if they don't, we're going to court. So just to be clear, these are state laws that require actual signatures on petitions to get on the ballot. And I think uh, you sent me a a letter that uh, the Green Party has sent to the um, state of Illinois. I gather that's one of those states. Which are the big states that the law requires the signing of these signatures? And secondly, what kind of response have you gotten to date from those state officials? Well, every state is different. There are 51 different jurisdictions with different election laws. So we are qualified in 21 states because we either ran a presidential candidate or another statewide candidate that reached a certain threshold of the vote, which keeps us on the ballot for the next election cycle. For example, I had to get, I was the Green Party candidate for governor of New York in 2018. We needed 50,000 votes and I got well over that. So we're on the ballot in New York. But that leaves 30 other states. And you ask for some of the big states. Illinois is one of them. Ohio is another. Indiana is another. Pennsylvania is another. Right through that Midwest band, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, some of the southern states and some of the mountain states. We're doing pretty good on the coast, uh, a couple of New England states. So it's 30 states. And what kind of response have you gotten from state officials when you've asked for this relief? I'm not aware of any response yet. These letters are just starting to go out. The Illinois letter I know has gone out. Minnesota and Maryland, I also believe, have sent letters. And uh, 
I haven't heard the responses yet. Howie, I, I know you said that the Green Party is already on the ballot in New York State. I thought I read, correct me if I'm wrong, that Governor Cuomo actually ad- addressed this issue at a press conference in which he said that he was going to ban the petitioning because of the pandemic for public health reasons, but that he was reducing the percentage of or the number of signatures that you would need by some something like 70 percent. Is that right? And and if that's the case, if he can do that by executive order, couldn't other governors all over the country do that as well? And is that something you're trying to get them to do? Is that enough? I mean, could you get 30 percent if it was reduced by that much? Well, what Governor Cuomo did was for the primaries, which is scheduled for the presidential primary April 28th and the other primaries in June. And for the Green Party, we had state committee petitions to do. We send our uh, state committee members from counties. So we had to get our signatures done early because there was a deadline. We couldn't go out. I think it was March 17th was the last day, 5 p.m. We had to be off the streets. And so we were able to do that. That could be a precedent when we talk to other states. As far as I know, Governor Cuomo hasn't said anything about the general election petitioning, which we don't have to worry about because we're already on the ballot because of what we did in 2018 in the gubernatorial race. And we should point out, this is just not an issue for the Green Party. Other third parties are facing the same issue, libertarians and other parties that want to be on the ballot, if I'm correct. And so this strikes me as significant, as a significant example of how the virus pandemic is altering, affecting American democracy if it's going to complicate and maybe prevent third, fourth, fifth parties from getting on the ballot in the general election. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. So, you know, we're we're speaking up for ourselves and appealing to the states to give us relief, and we're prepared to take them to court if they don't give us relief. So, Howie, I know you you must know there are a lot of Democrats out there who are not going to be feeling a whole a whole lot of sympathy, even if they believe in ballot access and believe in democracy, because their number one goal is to defeat Donald Trump. And that is why they apparently have made Joe Biden their nominee. And so what many of them are going to be saying is, well, the Green Party cost uh, Hillary Clinton the election in 2016. And they'll remember the Green Party in their belief costing uh, Al Gore the election in Florida in 2000. Now, I know you must have marshaled arguments against that, but that's going to make it much harder to get support for what you're trying to do here. Well, we've never had support from the Democrats for ballot access. I filed a lot of ballot petitions and I get challenged even with very frivolous challenges. For example, I was running for Congress one year I had plenty of good signatures, but they filed objections. And, you know, by the time the process was over, it was early October before I was certified on the ballot. In the meantime, the Democrat was arguing I should not be in the televised debates or any forums because I wasn't on the ballot. So we've had we've dealt with those games in the past. We just went through in New York. Governor Cuomo had a commission set up to set up a public campaign finance system, add on to it much more difficult requirements to stay on the ballot. Basically, two and a half times the number of votes, twice as frequently, presidential races as well as gubernatorial races every two years. And if you got knocked off the ballot, instead of 15,000 signatures in six weeks, you had to get 45,000. So we don't see them as friends in terms of ballot access. On the other hand, we did defeat that change that the Cuomo Commission put in in court. That's been knocked out. So, you know, we'll maybe have better luck with some of these judges than with some of these Democrats who are in charge. Of course, they don't want us to compete. But, you know, you can go back to Nader. You can talk about 2016. We've been giving them a solution to that. They have lost because of the Electoral College, much bigger factor than the Green Party. It overrepresents conservative rural white America and underrepresents diverse cosmopolitan urban America. And they win the popular vote, but they lose because of the Electoral College. You would think after two decades, they would make that an issue, abolish the Electoral College and have a national popular vote with ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting would enable people to vote for their favorite candidate without worrying about helping the candidate they most fear. That solution is out there. And if we are not in the race raising that issue, it's not going to be discussed. Well, that does require a constitutional amendment, right, which is a laborious and very difficult process 
You got to get uh, two thirds Congress and then three fourths of the states to ratify. So that does not seem like an immediate solution to the problem you're addressing. Although it is, it is the case that since the last election, where Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by some three million votes, there's a, an uptick in support for abolishing the Electoral College. But uh, I agree with Mike. It's a it's a heavy, heavy lift. And Howie, I, I don't think you really addressed Danny's question, which is, you know, yes, it's great to talk about Electoral College uh, abolition or reform down the road, but we're facing an election this year. And the argument was credibly made that your party's candidate the last time around, Jill Stein, took enough votes away from Hillary Clinton to elect Donald Trump president. And Jill Stein isn't running again, but you are. You're the likely nominee of your party. And uh, you could end up doing the same thing if you get the kind of ballot access you want, draining enough votes from Joe Biden to reelect Donald Trump. Well, most of our votes come from people that wouldn't vote for the Democrats or the Republicans. You look at the exit polls in Michigan, for example, and where people's preferences were, they were more stay at home and vote for Clinton among the green voters. It wouldn't have made a difference in that case. Now, it could make a difference, but I would say this is really in the Democrats' hands. If they run a good campaign, I mean, this coronavirus is Trump's Katrina on top of all the other nonsense he's done. And they have the megaphone. I mean, we're on the margins in terms of getting access to the media and getting our word out. So if they run a good campaign, they should crush Trump. We're going after the people who are alienated mostly working class people, youth, people of color, who feel neither party knows them, cares about them, and has any solutions for them. And that's, if we're going to have a third party on the left, that would be our base. So we're in this race to raise issues that are of concern to those people. You know, Bernie Sanders raised some of these issues, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, tuition-free higher education. And those issues will not be debated in the general election unless the Green Party is in the race. So I think those are good reasons to have a real democracy and let people make their choices. Do you think that the apparent uh, defeat of Bernie Sanders for the nomination opens up new opportunities for the Green Party this time around to go after those Bernie Sanders supporters who might be reluctant to pull the lever for Joe Biden? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're already coming to us. Donations ticked up, volunteers ticked up right after Super Tuesday. And so those folks are a lot of them are already coming to us. So, uh, Howie, you said that uh, you're putting together teams of lawyers. What is the legal ballot access strategy? And have you begun to try to litigate any of these cases already? None of them have got to that stage. We're waiting to hear a response from the uh, officials and see if they'll give us relief. And I'll leave it to the lawyers for the legal arguments. I mean, I've heard some of them. You know, we've been on a ballot in the past. And, uh, you know, that should be an argument for that we would be on this time if we were able to petition. It seems like it is going to be a, a tough battle and that, you know, no assurances of getting on as many state ballots as you were the last time around or anywhere near that, given where you are right now. What is your plan B? What are you going to do if, say, you end up on 30 some odd state ballots and that's it? What does that do to your movement in 2020? Well, in most of the states, about 40 of the 51 jurisdictions, the results of the presidential election affect whether that state will have a Green Party on the ballot for the next election cycle. So we will definitely work in those states to reach those thresholds. And, you know, I've been told I should run a safe state strategy where I only compete in the states where it doesn't matter because we already know the result and stay away from the competitive so-called battleground well, states. Well, yeah, let me I was going to ask that. Are you on the ballot currently in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? Because those are the states that when people say the Jill Stein took the election away from Hillary Clinton, whether you buy that argument or not. Are you, in the, are you on the ballot in those states? We're on the ballot in Michigan. Wisconsin's petitioning requirements are pretty reasonable and easy. If we, so I, I think we'll be able to get relief there or even physically go out if there's any kind of lift of the lockdown in time. In Pennsylvania, we have a long history of being on a ballot. And what I was about to say is for the Green Party, every state is a battleground. Take Pennsylvania. They have massive fracking, massive pipeline building. It's all leading toward a petrochemical plastics complex in the Ohio Valley. And 
the Democrats, even those that support Bernie Sanders, you know, the elected officials, won't touch that issue. And so the Greens find themselves on the opposite side of both the Democrats and Republicans on that issue, on affordable housing issues, on police brutality issues, on so many issues. So we need to get ballot lines so we can run our state and local candidates in the next election cycle. And the idea is to build a Green Party from the bottom up. We should be electing thousands of people to local and in state office. When we get a caucus in Congress, then the media will have to pay attention to us when we run a presidential ticket. We've, uh, we have about 150 Greens selected around the country, but that's a drop in the bucket. There are literally hundreds of thousands of offices, about half a million offices that are up for election. We can build at that level and create a real base. Howie, we should uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. You're uh, a former Teamster and longtime activist in um, progressive causes, uh, Green New Deal, anti-war, anti-nuclear. But what is your message for voters right now, A, in the middle of this crisis, and more broadly for a general election campaign, why people should pull the lever or vote by mail for the Green Party rather than Joe Biden? Well, if you're a progressive or a socialist and you vote for Joe Biden, they don't know whether you're a Sanders socialist or a Biden centrist. You get lost in the sauce and the left disappears. Nobody questions what a vote for the Green Party is. We're for Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and these other progressive reforms. And I would say to people, vote for what you want and make the politicians come to you. An example is uh, when I ran for governor in New York in 2014, I got nearly 5% of the vote. Governor Cuomo was planning to run up the vote more than his father, Mario, ever got, more than he got in 2010. And he got less. And he had to look at what we were talking about that got us 5%. We were talking about a ban on fracking, a $15 minimum wage, and paid family leave. And in order to compete for the votes we got, Cuomo had to move our way on those issues. So you don't have to win the office to have leverage in the political system. So it's better to vote for what you want and make the politicians come to you. A lot of this does sound very similar to what Bernie Sanders was campaigning on and his message. Uh, You mentioned before you've gotten an uptick in donations since uh, the Sanders candidacy has faltered. Have you heard from or gotten support from any previous Bernie Sanders supporters, any who are particularly prominent, who are out there, who have said, no, I'm not going to back Joe Biden. I'm going to go with the Green Party this time. I don't know of any people that are prominent that, you know, people listening to this broadcast would know. So, you know, in 2016, Jill Stein said, did a first a private message in a sort of open letter saying to Bernie, if, uh, you know, you want to break with the Democratic Party, let's talk. And I actually put that out on a podcast earlier this week. I don't think he's going to do it. I've known Bernie since the 70s. His word is good. And he said he's going to back whoever the Democratic Party is, candidate is. And I, I think we can count on that. But that doesn't mean his supporters can't, you know, continue to campaign for Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and those other things in 2020 instead of letting them just disappear. And I think you're right. Sanders didn't win the nomination in 2016, but he changed the debate. And this primary, everybody was talking about Bernie's issues, which means just half of the battle is getting a discussion on the issues. And that's why it's important that all voices be in the elections. But Howie, I mean, let's say you did end up, the Green Party did end up getting on the ballot in a lot of these states. You reversed the trend. And, you know, at the end of the day, shortly before the general election, presidential election, the data suggested that you're going to be taking enough votes away from Biden to elect Trump. By that time, the Green Party would have influenced the conversation, as you have in the past. Would you consider pulling out and backing Biden to keep Trump from being elected? No, my my supporters would, would string me up for that. You know, people that make that calculation and decide they got to settle for Biden, even though they like me better, they're going to make that calculation without me telling them they should. You know, I'm just going to campaign on the issues and let the voters make up their own minds. Hey, uh, Howie, uh, Jill Stein, the Green Party's candidate in 2016, took quite a bit of flack because in 2015, 
2015, she flew to Moscow to participate in the uh, 10th anniversary celebration of RT, the uh, Russian TV propaganda station. Would you do that? I wouldn't go to the RT gala. So she was wrong to do that. They, they wouldn't invite me to hear what I have to say. They would invite me just to say I was there. I have gone on RT programs where I think, you know, they won't edit what I say. But that's a situation I wouldn't put myself in. So Jill Stein was wrong to fly to that event in Moscow. I think it was a mistake. I mean, that one picture. In fact, we had some discussion beforehand and somebody said they could take a picture and that'll overwhelm everything you say. Her at the table with Vladimir Putin and Mike Flynn. Rudnick International put that right out and it went, you know, the AP distributed it around here and that became the story. And, and what she actually said, I mean, she's been called a Russian asset, but she was challenging Putin on issues like the Arctic Sea should be an oil and gas free zone. But Russia's exploiting that. She said there was actually an RT gala in New York before the one in Moscow. And she told the Russians there we should have an arms embargo of Syria. And that was two days before Russia started bombing. So, you know, she wasn't if she was supposed to tow the Russian line as a Russian asset, she didn't get the memo. But all that got lost because of that picture. Yeah, I want to make sure I, I heard you properly. Did you say that uh, before she went to Moscow, you had a conversation with her and, and warned her about the potential of a picture like that and the risk that that would represent? I didn't warn her about the picture. Somebody else on the email thread did. But, you know, I, I told her she better ask a lot of hard questions about what RT really wants. And I didn't think it was a good idea. But you uh, are distinguishing yourself somewhat from Jill Stein, at least on this issue, but more broadly on uh, policy towards Russia. Do you support continued sanctions on the Russians for both their intervention in Ukraine and their uh, intervention in the U.S. election in 2016? I think we should stop poking the bear. First of all, I don't see them as a real threat to our homeland security because they have a military budget that's about a tenth of ours, an economy that's about a sixth of ours and totally dependent on oil and gas exports. And if we do go with a Green New Deal, they're in trouble. But they are a nuclear superpower. And right now, Trump and Putin are not even talking about the new START treaty, which expires February 1st. So I think we have to engage Russia diplomatically on a lot of serious issues, including climate change, the new nuclear arms race, these proxy wars in Ukraine and Syria, anti-terrorism. And that's not an easy task. But what we've been doing is, you know, some of the largest war games we've ever done. We're about to do one involving nuclear weapons in the war game against Russia. That is not the way to solve problems. Howie, but but wait a second. What if the Russian trolls start running Facebook ads and Twitter bots boosting your candidacy, saying Hawkins is the guy to listen to? He is proposing a detente with the with Russia. He'll. Um, are you going to accept support from people who see those ads? Will you speak out and denounce the Russians for running ads like that to boost your candidacy? Yeah, if we can prove it, it's difficult to prove, but I know reporters like you are on that case. And I don't want help from Russians or bots or trolls. I think they should stay out of our elections and we should just have a debate amongst ourselves. I've got uh, one other uh, just political question. I think Mike was suggesting before that a lot of Bernie Sanders positions line up you know, fairly well with the Green Party's positions on the Green New Deal, on defense spending, a bunch of other things. Where do you differ? What are some significant ways in which you differ from Bernie Sanders, you know, other than Sanders willing to run as the Democratic nominee and, and, and you're not? Well, I really believe in democratic socialism. And I think Bernie used to. I, I organized a showing of his Eugene Debs slideshow back in the 70s. Today, he talks more about FDR than Eugene Debs. He talks about New Deal type reforms, which are good reforms, but in the end, he depends on taxing the billionaire class to pay for those programs, which leaves the billionaire class with concentrated economic power, which translates into concentrated political power, and they can resist and roll back those programs. I believe in two things that Bernie doesn't anymore. One is the working class should have its own party and speak for itself instead of trying to go into and permeate a party committed to capitalism like the Democratic Party. 
your message gets lost. And secondly, we need social ownership of major means of production so we can have an economic democracy where we the people, not these private corporate tyrannies, get to make the basic policy decisions about technology and you know how we're going to meet people's basic needs without destroying the environment. So I really do believe in a democratic socialism, not just liberal reform of capitalism. So you're a, you consider yourself a a purer socialist than than you think Bernie Sanders is. Well, the dictionary definition of socialism. I, I don't want to say I'm pure, but <laughs> socialism has is historically. What industries and companies do you want to nationalize? I think the whole power sector, including the fuel companies, you know, the Koch brothers and Exxon are not going to reinvest their profits from fossil fuels in renewables. Uh, that's only going to happen if they're part of a public administration. What I want to do is do what we did during World War II when the federal government took over a quarter of U.S. manufacturing capacity. They either built it or they took it over from companies like Ford and GM and through the Office of War Mobilization coordinated the building of what they called the arsenal of democracy, which armed us, armed the U.K., armed the Russians to defeat the fascists. And we need to do something very similar to defeat climate change. So that would include the power sector. It would include railroads. We got to rebuild our freight railroads and densify them and electrify them. We've got to have bullet trains, high-speed trains between our cities and reduce air travel. And we need to rebuild the trolley systems, the light rails we had in all our cities between the 1890s and the 1930s. And that's not going to happen, I don't think, without it being a public enterprise. How about social media companies? Would you nationalize Facebook and Google? I would look at those platforms and see they should they might should be public enterprises with some kind of independent board so they're not state media but uh, represent the people because those network platforms tend toward monopoly because once they've got the most people everybody wants to be on there because that's where the most people are that's where the most information is and how we govern them is a, a very serious question so I think social ownership is one option antitrust activities is another you know, have Facebook divest some of its other companies that are social platforms. I think we got to take a close look at that. But that's an area where public enterprise may be appropriate. Natural monopolies is, is a classic case where public enterprise makes better because the market doesn't work. Let me ask you this, because some of the things you talked about echo a little bit this debate about the Defense Production Act, which Trump uh, has invoked but has not really pulled the trigger on. In a situation like the one we're facing now, where the mobilization of medical equipment is going to be so important to save saving lives, what would you do if, if you were president right now and the policies and political system that you advocate for were actually what we had in this country. Yeah, I, I would invoke it and do the kind of World War II thing, officer war mobilization. We have, should have an office coordinating this whole thing so that the medical providers have an idea when these supplies are coming. What's the production schedule? What's the distribution schedule? Who's doing it? Uh, right now, they're kind of, you know, flying in the dark because Trump and Pence say, well, Ford is stepping up and GM stepping up, but People really don't know when that's going to happen. I heard one projection, it's going to be a couple months before they even get their production lines going on ventilators. So I think, you know, public planning and direction and transparency. So people who are doing the local planning in their hospitals and communities have an idea of when reinforcements in terms of medical equipment are coming. And I think that's an area where the federal government should have stepped up. Right now we have you know, 50 governors doing different things. Some states are locked down, some are still wide open, and the virus can spread. I guess this is a, a situation, an instance in which a command economy has significant advantages. Yeah, a planned economy, the Pentagon really does that. And, you know, it's so big that it can't even keep track. I think the Department of Homeland Security has the same problems. They have so much money flowing through there. So you have to have, you know, good accountability. But, if you just wait for private enterprise to step up on their own timeline in an uncoordinated way, you know, the people that need this equipment aren't even sure when it's coming. Hey, Howie, uh, you mentioned before you've known Bernie Sanders since the 1970s. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him, how you came to know him, how, if you worked with him on matters? You mentioned a Eugene Debs uh, video of some kind. Just tell us a little bit more about uh, your days with Bernie Sanders. 
Yeah, I was a freshman at Dartmouth College in 1971, too, and he ran for the U.S. Senate in the spring in a special election and then for Vermont governor in the fall with a third party called the Liberty Union. And I used to write to uh, a woman up there in northern Vermont and say, send me an envelope full of leaflets and I'll get them out. So I was doing that until I think I bugged them so much they said, we can't afford to send you more leaflets. And I encountered Bernie. I watched him campaign. He was, of all those third-party candidates, he was a real campaigner. And so, you know, I attended some of his talks. And, you know, I was just a kid. I think, you know, he might have recognized me, maybe not. Uh, Then later in the 70s, when he stopped running with the Liberty Union, he put together a slideshow on uh, Eugene Debs, which I organized. And then he got elected mayor of Burlington in 81. And so, you know, that was encouraging, but sometimes we were on opposite sides. The Greens up there had to challenge him on a waterfront development and defeated him in a referendum. And that's how they got the people's waterfront up there. Uh, later on, there was a Gatling gun, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon, they called it in Vietnam, these uh, helicopter gunships. It was, the gun was manufactured. It put a bullet in every square yard in a football field with one blast. And so there was a movement of peace activists, you know, prominent people like Dave Dellinger and Grace Paley and hundreds of their friends. And and Bernie was on the other side of us on that. So on the other hand, I was on the same side of him when we were trying to get the state of Vermont to divest. So it's not like you guys were close. I mean, he, he, does he know you if you uh... I I think he'd remember me, but I'm not yeah. sure we were not close, but we were both part of the movement in Vermont. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, You know, a lot of people may not agree with your platform and your prescriptions for America, but I think a lot of us will agree that your voice, the Green Party's voice, the Libertarian Party's voice should all be heard and be on the ballot in the November election. So we wish you luck on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, we're, we're happy to have all different perspectives on Skullduggery and, and certainly happen to, happy to have yours on the podcast. So, so come back. I'd be happy to anytime. Thanks to Yahoo News public health contributor Catherine Jacobson and Green Party candidate for president Howie Hawkins for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.